Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have access to the throne of grace this morning. Not because we're so worthy or we're so special, but because of Jesus, our mediator, our great high priest, our advocate. We are accepted in the beloved. We're here because of him. It's the only right we have to talk to you. And we just thank you that many this morning can call on you as Father, as Abba. We were not in your family and you adopted us and caused us to be born again into your family. And so we thank you for that, for the privilege we have of knowing you as our God and Father. I pray for anyone who's here who is not in your family, that even today you would do that miracle of new birth and bring them in as well. You said we can do nothing apart from you, and we're very aware of that. We need you for everything. We need you to help us now as we open your word and look at what Jesus says. Would you work in our hearts both to will and do what your good pleasure is this morning. Pray that the Holy Spirit would be working among us and in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Kevin DeYoung starts his book on prayer by asking, Is there any activity more essential to the Christian life and yet more discouraging in the Christian life than prayer? We know we should pray. We want to pray, or at least we want to want to pray. We admire those who pray, and yet, when it comes to actually praying, most of us feel like failures. We wish we prayed more often. We wish we prayed longer. We wish we prayed better. And then he mentions all our good intentions about doing better in this. And he says at the end, we just feel this load of medium-grade guilt for not praying enough. In other words, we all could use some help when it comes to this part of our relationship with God. In our text for today, Jesus gives us some instructions to encourage us when we talk to God in prayer. If you have your Bible, please turn with you to Matthew chapter 6. This is kind of in line of getting ready for next weekend and a retreat on prayer with Dana Olson. Some of you will be there. Some of you will be here next week along with myself. We'll be looking at the Lord's Prayer next Sunday. But um, the next two Sundays, anyway, focused on prayer. And so we want to start in Matthew 6. Verse 5 and 6. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So you can summarize those two verses by saying, Don't worry about what other people think about your prayers. Your Father sees you. 
Jesus calls attention to our motives when we pray. He tells us, don't be like those who pray to be seen by others. The goal is not to be noticed by other people or to impress other people or gain human approval. If that's what you're after, that's all you'll get. Charles Spurgeon shares an example from a Monday night prayer meeting he was at. A brother began his prayer with the words, O thou which art incinctured with an auriferous zodiac. What does that even mean? So praying to impress others is probably not a problem for most of us. But sometimes we might feel nervous about praying with other people in a small group or in a Bible study or some other setting. I'm no good at praying. I'm uncomfortable praying in front of other people. Pretty common thing. And Jesus is saying, don't worry about what other people might think of your prayers. They're not the audience. God is the audience. So keep your eyes on him, knowing he sees you when you pray. And the main point in these verses is that prayer is primarily a private conversation with God. Yes, there is a place for corporate prayer, but most of our time in prayer will be spent alone with God. But just stop and think about that for a minute. God Almighty, the creator of a hundred billion galaxies, sees you, would you pray? So think of Psalm 8, when I consider the heavens, the moon, and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So David's looking in the starry sky and goes, I can't believe that this God who created all this would even think about me. And here Jesus is saying, yes, that same God is your Father, and he sees you, and he hears you, and he's with you when you pray. And we need to clarify something very important right from the beginning, and that is, who is Jesus talking about when he says, your Father? God is the creator of all people, but he is not the Father of all people. Not all people are in his family. For example, turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, Jesus is addressing some very religious people who assumed they were in a right relationship with God. John 8, beginning at verse 41. Jesus says, You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. So here are people assuming they're God's people. Here are people who claim God is our father, and Jesus says, no, you're not. If you were really in God's family, you would love me. But as it is, you're actually children of the devil. That's your father. So it's possibly totally out of reality in terms of who's your father. And that might be you this morning. That might be your situation. You assume you're in good shape with God because of your religious background or your family background or your religious activities. You think you're in pretty good shape. You don't have a relationship with God. 
And if God is showing you that's your condition, first of all, acknowledge, I don't have a right relationship with God. I have a broken relationship with God because of sin. I've turned away from God and gone my own way. Isaiah 59 two says, your sins have caused a separation between you and your God. So then we turn Going from going away from God, we turn from sin. We turn away from trying to have a relationship with God based on who we are or what we can do. In Romans 9, Paul says, What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Righteousness means being right in God's sight or right standing with God. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. So it's good to want righteousness, but if you pursue it the wrong way, namely as if it's something you can establish, you can achieve, you can earn by something you do, you're never going to get it. You will always fall short. It is only by faith. And so we trust Christ alone to take away our sin and to bring us into a relationship with God. His death on the cross is the only remedy for our sin. He paid the debt of sin in full that literally would take us forever in hell to pay off. Literally. It's never paid off or it's paid on the cross. And he rose again the third day to show his work was complete And he is now able to save to the uttermost. Uttermost means completely and forever. Those who come to God through him. It's back in Matthew 6. Verse 7 and 8. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do. For they suppose they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So you can summarize these. Don't worry about the amount of words in your prayers. Your Father already knows your needs. We want to avoid praying like hypocrites trying to impress people, and we also want to avoid praying like Gentiles trying to impress God. Gentiles just means people from a non-Jewish ethnic background, And the main thing here is they don't know the true and living God. And because they don't have a clear picture of what the real God is like, they pray as if they will be heard for their many words. So there's this assumption that the sheer quantity of words, how much you repeat certain requests, how long and how often you pray is the main thing that will sway God to act on your behalf. You see an example of that kind of approach by those who don't know God in First Kings, if you want to turn to First Kings, chapter eighteen. This is the contest, if you will, on Mount Carmel between four hundred fifty prophets of Baal and Elijah. Beginning at verse twenty-six, then they took the ox which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal. From morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. 
and they leaped about the altar which they made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he's a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried out with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. So they are literally playing all day long, supposing this Baal is going to hear them if they pray long enough. And of course, nothing happened. Elijah prays roughly 15 seconds, and fire from heaven falls and consumes the sacrifice. So it's not about the length, but that idea that quantity is the main issue in prayer is still around. So let me just give you two examples that I have right here. One, a mission newsletter I received recently had the following quote. According to survey results, the prayer necessary to reach the world by the year 2000 would take only 2% of the time we evangelical Christians spend daily watching TV and shopping. So obviously it's a dated Reference because it was still looking at 2000, but but you hear the mentality? Calculate how much you watch TV and shop. Take 2% of that. And if you just prayed that much, the world would be reached by now. Or, this is right here in Siouxland. Got this in the mail. Set aside two hours a month to press in intercession so that it will be impossible to go to hell from Siouxland. Just two hours a month. And it will be impossible to go to hell. Now, of course, we want to pray that God would rescue lost people in Siouxland and beyond. And, of course, we want to pray for the cause of missions, that God would gather worshipers from all the nations. Of course, we want to pray that way. But don't get into the mentality of it's about how many minutes or hours you pray that, like, put the money in the coin slot, and then you get this result. It's not a vending machine. We don't want to measure prayer as if the amount of time or amount of words is the main thing. Quantity of prayer is not the key of getting God to respond. In contrast to thinking about God that way, Jesus reminds us, your Father already knows what you need, even before you ask. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, we're in Matthew 6, 6.32. The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. God already knows what we need. He knows all things. First John 3.20. God knows all things. He knows everything about everything. Or Psalm 139. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. In other words, before I even speak, including speak a word of prayer, you already know what I'm going to say. Or Isaiah 65, 24, before they call, I will answer. So Jesus' point is we don't need to inform God about our needs. It's not like he would be unaware of what's going on in our life unless we let him know. He is our Father who knows and cares about all our needs and graciously invites us to bring all of our needs to him. 
Next week will be, the next verses are the Lord's Prayer, so we're going to fast forward to Matthew 7, and Lord willing, we'll do Lord's Prayer next week. But look at verse 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. So you could say the basic point of those verses is, don't give up too quickly in your prayers. Your Father answers you. We want to avoid the ditch of assuming lengthy prayers is what's the most important thing. We also want to stay out of the opposite ditch of thinking, just offering up quick, occasional prayers, and then saying, well, I prayed nothing happened. That's not a good place either. D.A. Carson compares that type of praying to kids who ring the doorbell and run away before anyone answers. We always call that ding-dong ditching at our house. Hey, God, I need this. Whoosh, I'm gone. You might have a footnote in your Bible that tells you the verbs in these two verses are all in the present tense. In other words, ongoing action. You could say, keep asking God for what you need. James 4.2 says you have not because you ask not. There are blessings you don't have and I don't have in my life because we didn't ask God for it. And I don't know how that all works. <laughs> I don't understand how prayer works, quite frankly. God is sovereign. We've heard that. We know that. We read that in the Bible. And he has ordained that he uses prayer as a means to accomplish his will. Now, I don't know how that all works. But there's some things in our lives we don't have because we didn't pray about it. And then he says, keep seeking. Keep seeking God as the one you look to and depend on. Hebrews 11.6 says, God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So keep seeking. And keep on knocking. Go to Acts 12. There's a Illustration of this in Acts 12. The background is Peter has been sent to prison. Again. <laughs> We're going to keep seeing that in Acts. In Sunday school. In Acts 12. And so they had a prayer meeting. The church is praying for him. God sets him free. I would say presumably in answer to those prayers. And then pick it up in Acts 12. 12, verse 12. And when he, Peter, realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who's also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So here's the prayer meeting. Peter goes to the house that they're having the prayer meeting at. And it says, when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. We're busy praying about him. <laughs> he can't be out because we're praying God will set him out. So we're not going to throw any stones at them, are we? So they, they kept saying, it's, it's his angel. 
But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. So Peter didn't just knock once. Oh, nobody's home. I'll leave. He kept knocking until somebody opened the door. And that's just an illustration of what Jesus says when he says, keep on knocking, and the door will be opened. In other words, the point of all three of those phrases is, stay with it. Don't give up praying too quickly or too easily. Expect a response from God, confident you're not wasting your time. And how providential that here's Andrew and Brittany up here saying, we prayed for years that God would give us this baby. Years! And God answered. Last Sunday, in Sunday school, one of the brothers said, prayer is effectual, which is a big word meaning effective, producing a desired result. And he added, sometimes we don't believe that because of unanswered prayers, right? Prayer is effectual, doesn't always quote-unquote work. But in spite of our unanswered questions about unanswered prayers, Jesus is saying, keep on praying. Keep trusting your Father knows what you need ahead of time. Keep trusting He knows what is best and will give what is best at the best possible time. He doesn't solve all the mysteries about all that. He just says, keep praying. Maybe you need an encouragement that way. Keep praying. Don't give up. Verses 9 through 11, back in Matthew 7. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So Jesus starts with an illustration about earthly fathers. The basic point is even sinful, imperfect fathers, which is the only kind there are, give good gifts to their children. Even fallen, fallible parents take care of their children's needs. If a child asks for legitimate things like food, Ask for a loaf of bread, ask for fish to eat, basic, fundamental needs. No parent is going to give them something useless or harmful. And then he says, since you know that's true, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? That verse hit me in a remarkable way when I first became a dad, which is quite a few years ago now. And I remember the thought bubble, if God just loves me as much as I love my daughter, I've got it made. If he is as committed to her as or to me as I am to her, I know he'll always take care of my needs. That's just assuming he's at my level. And of course, he's infinitely better. 
And my inconsistency in living that way does not cancel out what Jesus says. In my better moments, I know that's true. I don't always have better moments. But the reality is there. We can rest assured our Father will give us what is good when we ask Him. And of course, the big question, the big issue is, whose definition of good are we using here? Right? We often have our own idea of what we think would be good. We have certain outcomes we think would be best. And Philippians 4.6 invites us to make our requests known to God. So it's open season. You can ask God for anything. You can always request, Lord, could we please have this? Could you please do that? You can always ask. But sometimes God has a different definition of what is ultimately good for us, which should not surprise us. In our families, there is sometimes a difference between what kids think would be good for them and what parents know would be best for them at a given moment. How much more Likely is it that as finite humans who don't know everything, we are going to have a different understanding of what is good in a situation than our infinitely wise Father. So a classic example would be the Apostle Paul. You know this story. He had a painful thorn in the flesh. We don't know what exactly it was, which is best because then we can fill in whatever our thorn in the flesh is. And it says, concerning this, I prayed to the Lord three times that he would remove it, which means three extended seasons of prayer. Now, asking God to remove a painful thorn is a reasonable understandable request. He's basically saying, Lord, it would be good not to have to deal with this thorn anymore. It would be good for you to take it away. It would be good to be healthy and strong. And 2 Corinthians 12.9 tells us God's response to his prayer. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. That's God's definition of what's good for you, Paul, or good for you, Sowers, or good for you, anybody Grace sufficient for the need, even when the thorn isn't taken away, even when the health isn't returned, even when the strength isn't there. Grace is there. Grace is enough. That's my definition of good. God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and his definitions are better than our definitions. 
So here's an example from just this week. If you're on the church email, you, if you're not on the church email list, you need to get on it just from the sheer encouragement that happens from week to week sometimes. So here's one that Tom Bell sent out just this week. And this is just a beautiful thing. So he sent it out to the church family. I just want to pause this morning and voice my thankfulness to God for his grace as it relates to my back. It's a week out from surgery. I have zero nerve pain, and the operation pain is almost completely gone. I've dealt with back pain my entire life. And as of this morning, it feels like both the lifelong and the roofing injury pain are completely gone. Just another example of God bringing about a greater good for one of his children, though at that time it seemed like a major setback. Tom's here. Ask him, how are you doing for those two months between the injury and the surgery? It was not a happy time in his life. It seemed like a major setback. It was, in reality, a gracious blessing. So I texted him when I got that email and said, I'm rejoicing with you, and you know, thanks for sharing that. And, and then he texted back, By his grace, I can say, I am equally thankful for the good that doesn't feel good as I am for those that do. That's profound. In other words, even the things in our lives that don't feel like good things are good gifts from God. Even the things that seem like setbacks in our lives are gracious blessings from our Father. And that's a fight of faith. There's just no way around it. It's a fight of faith. Whose definition do I trust of what's best for me? But by grace, we want to rest in the truth that our God, our Father, does all things well. And so I want to close with a quote from John Newton. He says, All shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. I'll repeat that because that might be worth writing down for you. All shall work together for good. Of course, that's Romans 8.28. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. So if it's in your life, it's ultimately for your good, even though it doesn't feel good. If it's not in your life, even though you think it should be, it would be good, it's not ultimately good. All of the sending and the withholding in our lives is managed by God for our ultimate flourishing. How happy are they who can resign all to him, see his hand in every dispensation, and believe that he chooses better for them than they possibly could for themselves. Let's pray. Well, Father, we just bow before you this morning. We want to acknowledge with submissive hearts you do all things well. We don't understand a lot of things in our lives or this world, but you have told us and shown us again and again you are good, you are faithful, you are perfect, 
love and wisdom. And so we have no reason to doubt you. So I pray you'd help us to fight the fight of faith. Lord, our faith is often weak. And we have doubts and fears. And we need more grace to fight and trust that you are our Father who's giving us what is good for us. Working all things for our good. Lord, help us to trust. I pray again for anyone who doesn't know you as their father, trying to live this life in their own wisdom and strength. Lord, that's just such a dead end in this life and a horrible end in the life to come. I pray that they would be drawn to the Savior this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and close.